is really, really great to be here with you today, Allison. We've got Allison Yoshimoto Towery, who is the Chief Academic Officer for LA Unified School District. It is wonderful to have you here. We want to talk to you a little bit today about what's going on in LA as kids have come back to school this year and talk a little bit about what is happening with you guys in terms of programs and a lot of issues that we're seeing dealing with trust as kids come back into school systems, particularly having been out for a long time. But first, give us just a little bit of background on you and your role in LAUSD. Stacey, it's great to be with you today. I'm Allison yoshimoto Terry, the Chief Academic Officer for the Los Angeles Unified School District. And it's a pleasure particularly to be with you today to talk about trust and the work that we're doing here to rebuild a path to recovery after the pandemic. I oversee birth to adult education, including specialized programs for English learners, standard English learners, gifted learners, including academic counseling, post-secondary success, advanced placement, and linked learning and career technical education. And particularly right now, we're looking at our work through an equity lens and just rethinking how we do business as usual. And how are things going for you? What are some of the bigger problems that you're seeing? And what are some of the solutions that you guys are putting in place? You know, I think this year has been an adjustment. First of all, it was incredible to have students back at school, to be back in in-person learning. And it reinforced just how much teaching and learning is a social interaction. We've worked really hard on increasing our attendance this year, building back the relationships, making sure that our families and our students, as well as our employees, right, feel safe both physically, mentally, emotionally, healthy. And that's been really important to spend time to first acknowledge that that really was an issue while we were in distance learning. And secondly, to find ways to build back that interaction, the social emotional lessons in school, the time to address mental health, and to know that when you're in school, you're in a community, not only physically in a community, but emotionally connected to a community of people. So if you step back for a minute, what do you think are some of the biggest difficulties that we are seeing with families, children, and teachers? What are the new issues or the struggles that you guys really feel compelled to kind of hyper-focus on and move us through the transitions that are going on in the world? That's an interesting question, Stacey, because there's a lot going on in the world right, right now. Right. And the last two years have been difficult for so many. There's been a lot of loss, loss of lives, loss of jobs, loss of way of living, and a lot of healing that's needed to happen as a result of that. At the same time, we are trying to ensure that our students have accelerated academically and we're back on our way to recovery uh, from being in distance learning. And so I think our teachers are in a position where we've been asking them to be warm demanders. Don't only focus on the social emotional aspect of teaching and learning while that comes first. We can't only do that. We also have to attend to the rigor of instruction and the academics that students need. And we have to hold ourselves and our students accountable for that as well. There's a duality in that, wanting to make sure that we're being warm, but we're also being demanding and having high expectations. And that can be tiring. So, you know, most of the educators I talk to, teachers and principals, uh, people who work in schools are tired. And I think that it's important that we've also been trying to attend to the needs of adults 
as well as the needs of students. Of course, always leading with what our students need, but just so that we attend to the fact that people stay healthy and we have enough energy to do our best and show up every day for our students in the best way. Some of the ways we've been doing that has really been around our community school work that we've been expanding in the district, really focusing on not only the integrated student supports, but also attending to what kind of academic experiences and enrichment experiences and extended learning experiences do students need during the school day, before school, after school, during the holiday breaks, and trying to make that fun, focusing on expanded outdoor education, and seeing that as a part of the whole experience that children get at school, including things like career technical education. It's really interesting because there's there's sort of these new catchphrases, if you will, maybe that's not the right, new terms of art that are actually coming out of this experience that we've all been through and that schools have been through. And two, one you just said I hadn't heard before, but what a great phrase, warm demanders, because it is this mix and this balance of empathy and communication and connection and relationship along with accountability. Another that we're hearing a lot of is, is the speed of trust. I think it's a really interesting thing. And you are a perfect person to talk about this because you have this sort of global view of the role of the school building and the school community as we go through all of this. How do you view the role of the school as we move through these endeavors? I only can imagine when Stephen Covey was writing the book about the speed of trust that he was thinking about relationships as well. And the expectation for educators has shifted dramatically through the pandemic. And if my job before was to teach content or to teach algebra or to teach biology through the mind, through a child's mind, I think through the pandemic, we learned to remember that it's also about reaching children's hearts. And that's where I think when Zaretta Hammond talked about what a warm demander was in her book, Culturally Responsive Teaching in the Brain, that she defined a warm demander as a teacher who communicates personal warmth towards students while at the same time demanding that they work towards high standards. We've all heard the saying that students need to know that you care about them before they'll work hard for you. And I think that the pandemic really showed us that and reminded us that we're people first, and our students are human beings first, and our families are people. And it comes back to that authentic relationship that we need to have as a foundation of all the work that we do in schools. It also speaks to the work that we do with our partners that surround schools. We have tremendous partnerships with local government, with nonprofit organizations, with philanthropy, with private sector, that during the pandemic rallied around public education to provide enrichment classes, to make sure students were getting access to support to complete financial aid. And we were able to outseed the state in doing that with support from our community partners. We were able to provide food through grab-and-goes. We were able to provide masks, diapers, and all types of things that our families needed at that time. That all came with trust, and it all came with a common commitment to meet a demand that we knew was happening. And that happens when we're listening and when people care. So I think that the pandemic, even though it was a crisis and it was difficult for so many of us, I believe that there were lots of opportunities to take from the crisis and really build. I mean, it's amazing because most people don't know this. Unless they're in education or they're reading these books, they don't understand the partnerships 
in terms of everything that goes into what we just went through and what you guys were able to do. The fact that you're providing diapers. If you had to say, you know, what can we learn from that? You know, we look at defining us as a classroom without walls, as educators being part of the national dialogue to really offer up solutions because they're seeing it every day. They're living it every day. They are actually on the front lines, solving things at a micro level in local communities, and they see what works and what doesn't work. I'd like to hear how you would say this could be an example for communities outside schools, for people as they move through their daily lives. What are the things happening in schools that you see that are sort of little miracle moments, really? I'm sure you see them every day that bring us towards healing and hope and actually are helping us build better communities in a chaotic time. You know, I wanted to share with you, Stacey, today a little bit about our Black Student Achievement Plan. Mm -hmm. We diverted several million dollars into this plan to support our students, understanding that inequities worsened during the pandemic and hit many of our communities much, much harder than others. And our schools that are part of the Black Student Achievement Plan have each engaged in reaching out to their community members to look at the assets in our communities, to look at the strengths that our communities bring and hold, historical wealth, ancestral wisdom, and have really each put together a plan to support. And I wanted to give you a few of those examples. We have high schools that are doing partnerships, very intentional partnerships with our Black African-American families and caregivers through regular meetings. We have library aides hosting parent meetings, particularly focused on Black African-American authors and accomplishments. And that not during just Black History Month, but all year long. Right. And to create that community in schools where parents and families feel safe, feel trust. Because if I'm a parent and I didn't have a good experience in school, I don't feel comfortable coming on to school now that I have a child in school, right? Mm -hmm. So we have to work doubly hard as a district that really doesn't just support students, but supports two or three generations at a time to attend to the needs of the adults that support our students and that live with our students. In some of our schools, we're really focused on restorative justice and alternate ways to engage and interact with our students to de-escalate behaviors Mm-hmm. and to become really knowledgeable at how to do that, to provide safe spaces for students, peer mentors for students that may just be a little bit older than us. We're really focused on bringing our partners to the table, like Brotherhood Crusade, like Bridge Builders, Becoming a Man. We're working with our faith-based leaders in our communities to establish advisories and really attending to the system needing to be different to support all of our students and all of our families, as opposed to traditionally the system expected everybody to show up equally. And I think that's a really important acknowledgement for all system leaders across the country to be in that reflective place where we're constantly looking in the mirror to say, what do we need to do differently to support our students to thrive and to succeed in our school environments? And that means our school environments may look different than they looked historically. And I think that that's a really interesting point because I think what we're seeing a lot now and talking a lot about is we are all products of the systems and without changing the system, it's very, very difficult to make transformative change. That said, systems are made up of people. And so it's amazing to hear about all those programs that are actually working in chaotic times. 
And so my question is, is, are you seeing that working because you believe that when you get on the ground and you have tasks to accomplish together and you're standing next to each other and you have the same goal and you're caring about the students, that relationship starts to build and it builds more quickly in a school setting? What makes that successful? I would say leadership is critical. We're focused on data-driven professional development structures so that we can target achievement of student groups historically underserved, looking at disaggregated data, creating goals that are specific, measurable, actionable, and having data chats to ensure that we're progress monitoring individual students. So knowing students by their name, by their need, and also by the assets and strengths that they bring. We're looking at data with our partners so I want to call it a couple of examples because partners are also our institutes for higher education in the region. So we have, for example, with Loyola Marymount, a family of schools where we have a P16 focus. We have a partnership with UCLA it's called the UCLA LUSD Collaborative that focuses on ensuring African-American students have the same opportunities as others to get to a four-year college or four-year university like UCLA, where students do college visits and counselors get extra training, and there might be Black student unions and groups that come together for support. And students are followed at UCLA all the way through graduation and success. We have a partnership with USC where in the neighborhood, students have opportunities to to have internships, but they also are focused on safe passage to and from school and focused on STEAM opportunities and enrichment. So these partnerships that we've developed in our communities with institutes for higher education have really helped to narrow the gaps that our families and students have in terms of opportunity. Because I do believe before an achievement gap exists, an opportunity gap has been present as well as sometimes as a belief gap. And we have to do our best to change our beliefs after proving that our students can and will do different. And that's the importance of data. People change their belief systems. I think that's a really important piece because, you know, we're talking a lot about changing belief systems right now in education, but it's not like you wake up one morning and go, oh, belief system change. Just because you've gone to one PD doesn't make that happen. You actually have to have an experience with it on the ground. You have to see the programs working and you have to see kids like Darion Allen who are really doing great things, schools like King Drew that are doing amazing things, graduation rates rise. And that really takes years doesn't it? And do you feel like y'all are making tremendous progress over a number of years at this point? I know it's common to say that change takes years. I do believe we can see change rapidly. And I think the pandemic is an example of that because overnight we had to change. And when systems unfreeze like that, there are opportunities to make rapid change that show gains. And even though they might not be in the optimal conditions, it proves to us that we can get different results. And I want to give you an example. During the pandemic in California and across the country, we had to change the way we were grading students. There's a point in the pandemic where we extended our fall grades, the due date, all the way to the end of January. And we gave students the winter break plus a month to complete any assignments that they were missing from the fall. Mm-hmm. And that's a common practice that we would call an equitable grading practice. And as a result of that practice or that policy change, there were 12,000 grades that were improved from a D or an F to a C or better grade. Wow. And I think that's really, really critical. And that's only, only high school. And I think that's really critical because it showed us that if we change the way we think about grading, not everybody learns in the same time frame, And if we really believe in a growth mindset, 
that with multiple opportunities, we can learn more, then we should be thinking differently about grading. And that's an example of relatively quick policy change because there was a need where students benefited from that decision it has really forced us to think differently ongoing you know, past that point, even to this date where we're really trying to expand our practices around equitable grading practices. And our board of education has also passed a resolution and we're working with our labor partners to think about how we approach grading in a way that focuses on mastery, competency-based mm -hmm. grading, and that we're attending to what students are learning and how they're learning it, as opposed to just a simple mark or grade. That's a great example and a great story. It's a fascinating thing about change and about how when these systems sort of break open, because they have to, how quickly things can happen and how much we will think outside of the box. And that's what I takes me back to educators being part of the national dialogue, because you guys have been forced really on a day-to-day -day basis to sort of get in there and figure it out much more so than any other, what I would call organized platform or group with the exception of healthcare. Healthcare and education have been the ones that have been pushed to solve problems really, really quickly. And so I want to get to defining us because you have been, and you are one of the primary people in defining us speaking out on what is so critical today for school systems and why we need to have educators and students have a voice in the national dialogue. Can you expand upon that? I just would like to hear from you. And I think the audience would like to hear from you is why this is so critical for educators to be part of this. I'm glad you asked this question, Stacey, because I believe that educators have to be at the forefront of the dialogue. And I'll take you one step further and say that I believe students also need to be at the forefront of the dialogue. Our kindergartners this year are going to be graduating high school in the class of 2034. And life in 2034 is not going to be the same life that we're leading today. And if we change that perspective a little bit, I'll say that life when you and I were going to school is not the same life that our students right. are <laughs> It's amazing. Well, yeah. And that means that education has to change and shift as fast as our students are. And that's not always the case. Sometimes we teach the way we were taught or we do things the way we remember them being done to us. So when we put students and educators at the forefront to problem solve today's problems, right. we get real time, real life dialogue around what's working, but also the barriers. And it's important to attend to the barriers so that we can have some creative thought around how we do things differently. A prime example is I had the pleasure of convening a group of young people um, over the last couple of months, and we've called it our JEDI Roundtable. JEDI stands for Justice, Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion Roundtable. So they're a group of 16 to 18-year-old students in Los Angeles, and they are really coming to the table with amazing ideas on how to shift the system in ways that it works better for them. And in California, we're getting ready to change the start time for high schools and middle schools next year to a later start time. Middle schools are going to start eight o'clock or later. High schools are going to start 830 or later. And that was something based on evidence that suggested young people don't like to wake up early. They do better when they're, you know, coming to school a little bit later. And that was took legislation, but it's an example of how wow. 
huge systems are going to shift in response mm-hmm. to the needs of young people. And young people and educators have these ideas that, that are really important. I had a teacher email me last night and he said, I just finished my dissertation and it's all about putting students in situations, students with disabilities in situations where there is theater and improv. Yeah. to help them come out of their shells and to help them be more confident and attend mm-hmm. to their social emotional learning. And he's found great success in that. And those are the people we need to be listening to, to really press on how leaders need to be different. So I see my job is closing the gap between those that are in practice, in our classrooms, in our schools, with those that are making decisions at the district level mm-hmm. and at the community level. So that change can happen faster and we can innovate more readily to be responsive to the needs really, really great to be here with you today, Allison. Everybody out there, we appreciate you listening and you can go to definingus.org and find out a whole lot more about the documentary and the resource guides. And there's a toolkit on the site and you will see all kinds of books and information from all of the folks that are in the documentary and what they're recommending. And we hope that you'll take that first step. 